Welcome Still to there? Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and we got a special podcast for you for 2023 New Year. Um, We're going to bring more stuff like this, new direction, but I have an author on the computer here, Gary Yee, and he wrote an amazing uh, reference book, World War II Snipers, The Men, Their Guns, Their Stories, and I just want to welcome Gary to the podcast because we need to jump into this book because it's just simply amazing. Welcome on, Gary. Thank you, Frank, and thanks for having me. It, uh, we have to credit Pierce. Uh, Pierce for putting us together on Sniper's Hide. Pierce is sort of the local Sniper's Hide historian, um, does a lot of things, history-related uh, reenactments, uh, information, and... Pierce was like, Frank, you got to talk to Gary. And he turned me on to this book, and I'm just glad he did. Yes, thank you, Pierce. <laughs> right, right. Pierce is Pierce is amazing. How did you meet Pierce? Uh, sniper's Hide. I mean, I posted something on the website. He contacted me, and I told him about the book. Oh, amazing, amazing. So let's uh, jump into this book. Now, this is a World War II reference book. And it is probably one of the most complete works I've ever seen. The We were just, before we came on, we were talking about it. The layout and design of this book is amazing and how it breaks everything down into these digestible chunks that go beyond detail. I mean, I can't believe how much work you put into this book alone, Gary. It's just, I mean... Top to bottom, it's just details that nobody is ever going to find anywhere. Uh, thank you, Frank. It's actually a culmination of decades of reading just for fun before I ever decide to write anything. So tell people, go into that, because like one of the things for me, we go and watch like History Channel. You watch any of the AHC documentaries. We notice like a lot of them, there was a certain segment of the World War II information that was really good. And then they, you know, then they colorize it and they re-release it. And now it's a colorized version. But if you look at any of these documentaries we see today, a lot of them repeat the same thing over and over again. So if I watch this one, you know, uh, uh, World War One Apocalypse, and then you watch another name, the, the scenes are really similar. In your book, it's down to the individual man's eye view and the stories are there from that. It's not regurgitated information that I saw on any of those documentaries that keep getting repeated. You went to a different source. That's correct. I'm of the opinion that nobody wants a rehash of what they already know or read about. And there's writers who come to mind who do that. Like Edwin P. Hoyt, who wrote some excellent books, but in my mind, they're no better than a, uh, a book-length college dissertation. And what I found my, myself compelled to do is, is to search out and find fresh new material that I could bring to the reader. Because if I couldn't bring fresh material, why bother writing at all? I mean, it's every page just about, I mean, it, it may go every other, don't get me wrong. I got them bookmarked here with that. But I mean, you have um, like quotes from, here's the, in the beginning in your introduction, I'll just go to the very first one. So on 
right in the beginning with your intro, you have Staff Sergeant Ray Lambert, 16th Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division, Normandy, June 6, 44. And he has a quote about a guy, you know, grabbed the guy from the water who'd been hit in the chest. We could have walked in Ustrom towards a big rock below the machine gun nest on the left. What can we do for him? Screamed Lepore. Before I come up with something, my medic and friend fell against me. His helmet spun around a foot away. A sniper's bullet had gone straight through, killing him instantly. Every page has quotes from the individual on the battlefield. Yeah, I try to put epigraphs at the beginning of every chapter to catch the person's attention. I think if you were an instructor at a sniping school, you're going to you want them to pay attention. You throw out something like an epigraph, and wow, this guy knows something. I'd never heard that before. Hey, I hey, actually hey. use the same technique. Go, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I use the same technique I developed in writing my very first book on the black powder sharpshooter. I found that people write about things they're interested in. And so I would, besides the normal books that we all know about, you know, Seth Allenberger's book, um, Lumidia Pavlichenko's book, um, uh, Tom McWinney's um, an Sniper Anthology. I wanted to find new material, and to do that, I just threw out a fishing net, and I brought in every single World War II memoir I could lay my hands on, and I would scour these books for that one sentence that tells me something that puts together part of the sniper story. And so that's why when you look at the bibliography, it's 12 pages long, triple column. What yeah, made I'm, the task a little easier is that I've been reading for years, so I already had a jump start before I actually started building up my uh, a new book collection. I'm now stuck with having to house another maybe ten shelves of books. <laughs> but that you know what, it's becoming that lost art because of the internet. And I remember growing up with the books, you know, the library in. You know, I I think it was like fifth grade for us every month, week, whatever the case was. We had to do a book report. There was one year in school they made us like constantly book report. And I had all the World War II books back then in, in the reference books because I always did the book reports on World War II because, like you said, that's what interests me. And, I, you know, we, we talked about a little online is – when I got out in sniper school and, and got some money here, I have all the Senate books and he goes through the histories, but he sort of segments each one. And it's, it's one long story for him. I feel like we're in your book. It's broken up into these reference points in like the inserts with the firearms. There are so many variants that, get cobbled together during the wars and things like that. I even see them now when I was teaching, you know, somebody can say, well, that rifle wasn't issued and we didn't use that. And then somebody else says, no, we had one right over here. And then they go, oh, the Marine Corps or so-and-so used that rifle. And it's like, well, we really didn't use it, but we took one from somebody and we used it that way. Like Marine Corps proper didn't know we had it. And you seem to have found all of those variants for all of the armies in those green insert pages you put in. Well, then there's still a lot more. In fact, I'm, I haven't finished uh, or stopped reading and I've got like 20 pages of raw material that can be incorporated if there's ever a second edition. So there's, it's, I think people in certain countries will find things others won't like I'm limited by language. I don't read German. I don't speak Russian. 
and some books are inaccessible to me because of the language barrier. There's probably a couple Englishmen who could write better books on English sniper than I could ever do. A couple of Russians could do the same thing with the uh, for the Soviet perspective. But there's still a lot of information waiting to be found if somebody wants to find it. Oh, absolutely. And you included it. I mean, you have all the, whether it's Russian or uh, even in the inserts, because in the, in the beginning up here in the training section, when you go into the, the different training and what's going on there with, with those inserts, you're including every country's and then the material you found and including some of the stuff that's in German and things like that. So I'm looking at that, like one of the inserts you have talks about the training films. When I went through sniper school in 1986, we watched the British and German World War One and Two training films. The same ones they used back then, which now you can find. I know the German one is on YouTube. I haven't seen the uh, British one we did. But um, yeah, we watched all those training films and you included a little insert talking about those films. And there's still a few, a few films out there that I haven't found yet. I know the Soviets put out some things and it, uh, Sepp Allerberger mentioned it, but I've never seen it. I found a 1931 Soviet film and they say it's a little different. They say Sniper and it's available on YouTube. And I and one of the British snipers may have seen that film because he alludes to one portion of a movie called Sniper. So there's still material out there if people want to look for it, if they have the resources, time, and, and make the effort. It, yeah. And I certainly try to do that because I want to bring something new to the table that people haven't seen before. In this, the, the, we were talking about your your kind of design, the design of this book. It's so perfect to grab off the shelf and go to where you want. I mean, it it lays it out where it's easy to find those materials because within like the training section, you go through every country, but then you you have those uh, sections that highlight the you know different changes in training or something that came up. Well, then you do the, you do the same thing under the employment and. With like employment, you're showing the propaganda, what was put out and what they were talking about when it came to employment. So you you go through the training, all the little tiny things that you found that focused around training, whether it was an advertisement to, hey, do you want to go do this or something that's saying we're training them better than the other guys to the employment to where it was the propaganda posters that said, hey, we're doing a better job. Oh, it, it, so it's easier than going on the internet because you're able to go to one place and then pull all these countries out across all your main topics where if you wanted to do this on the internet, you'd have to know exactly what you were looking for. Yeah. There are limitations to the internet, like the search engines, you know, Google said, if we, you can't get the right answer the first time, then it's not working. And I don't trust Google at all. I don't use Google. I try to find things like, for instance, interviews by soldiers. And you see it in a bibliography where I listen, it may be a half an hour, an hour long interview. And I'm waiting for that one comment he makes and says, that's something I need to know. Unfortunately, a lot of these interviewers try to get the general story without going into the details. I'm sure you've seen that, that video of that uh, old sniper who is, 
shot a modern gun at a thousand yards. He was with the 99th Infantry Division. Yep, yep. I did anyway. Anyway, the problem with that, I mean, kudos to him, but I wish I knew how he was selected. I have an idea, but I can't prove it unless I find evidence. And I'd like to know how he was trained. What did they do? Because the training varied between different army camps or overseas camps, and it, it depended on what resources they had, how much time they had. So it was very little consistency. Even in the Soviet Union, uh, they had ad hoc three-day schools where you barely learn how to use your rifle and your scope, or they had a six-month school, which if you were lucky enough, you attended and you know, skilled fully enough to graduate from. It all depends on when and where you went, you, you received your training. I, and we do we deal with that today. I mean, because we go back to the 80s when I was in and in, in, in like I didn't do an in-doc. I went through I talked to somebody, then talked to somebody. And then that got me into sniper school as a PFC. So if you followed me, if somebody said, well, Frank's a model for how someone in the Marine Corps went to sniper school, I went against every rule. I went as a PFC. I didn't do in-docs. I, you know, the, I had broken a whole bunch of rules to get where I was. And if you didn't know that, I mean, we have the God books. So somebody says, oh, I was a Marine sniper. We can go and look it up and say, hey, was this guy a Marine sniper? And we look up the years. Well, there was a year in Okinawa where they were getting failed and a battalion commander blessed the state platoon as snipers without going to school. So there's there's a single platoon of on-the-job training guys, and that becomes a running joke when you find somebody who didn't go to school but claims, and it's like, well, he's the Okinawa class. And it, it's you don't know that stuff, but you can't assume either. And you found all those stories going back to World War II. Sadly, it continues today. It does. And, you know, Besides going through books, too, I went to find garbage documents. I gave some insights. I went through. Uh, and you know what really was helpful was when I subscribed to an online newspaper thing, which allowed me to read those those World War II stories that everybody forgot about. And that really was a wealth of information. Well, and like I, I want to kind of get into because your photographs, like I was talking about, if we see, you know, it's always that German soldier suitcase carrying his rifle hunched down running low through the hedgerow it's that it's that picture of that german soldier kind of just running past the camera and i guess it's the apocalypse now joke right wasn't it apocalypse now where francis ford coppola is like a, a movie guy on the beach and he's trying to get him past keep going keep going your pictures it's you know you got a squad of german snipers in the rear relaxing and chilling out and it's like they're all just laughing with their rifles held in all different ways and you have a lot of these photographs that aren't necessarily combat photographs but they're at the same time they're either just before or just after and that's the stuff we see today with the wars but we almost never really saw behind the lines of the World War II stuff because they always just showed us them running into combat. And that's the thing. It, pictures can get monotonous if you see it too many times. And 
do you know who Martin Pegler is? Yes, I do. He wrote Out of Nowhere. Yeah. Martin uh, remarked that about my book, that he said there's a lot of fresh images he's never seen before. And that's part of the research. You're trying to find things nobody else found before. You go through all these archives. You go through all these obscure places. You know, some of the credit, though, also belongs to my editor, George Forty. He's the son of, no, I'm sorry, Simon Forty. Simon is the son of George Forty, an 8th Army officer who wrote quite a number of books after the war. And so Simon had a strong World War II background. He's got all his father's books, and he also found some of the pictures for me. There's some pictures that I had that he didn't think were suitable, especially some training pictures, but that's okay if they ever want to do a, a second edition. There's plenty of pictures out there. Yeah, the, the pictures you have are amazing because, like, to me, it always seemed there was the one sniper rifle out there during World War II, and you barely ever saw it. And then you find all these great pictures and everybody's standing front and center with them. And it's like scope after scope after scope on a sniper rifle. And then all the variations of the scope. So then you got to look at and you go, okay, there's that guy standing there. He's colorized. He's wearing, you know, he's got his M1D. Which one does he have? And then you go to your reference page and you can go right down and look and say, okay, he's got this variant. And to me, that's the amazing thing is you have a casual shot of an American soldier just hanging out with his rifle. And then you can go right over to the reference material and say, that's this variant. Yeah. You know, the reference material, I wish they didn't make those pictures so small because they, those, a lot of those images came from collectors who owned these things and who were gracious enough to, they give me permission to reproduce them. And they should have been bigger. That's that way you can study them more. But I wanted the book to be as thorough as possible, you know, a one-stop uh, shop type thing. If you wanted to read about World War II snipers, they, they would say, go to this book automatically or use this as your starting point. In fact, one writer in England, or Scotland rather, has actually started his, his own book based on the last chapters of mine. That's awesome. See, and, and, yeah, I think what you have going and sort of what you've built in, in the way you're doing this series, it's it's has that opportunity to kind of break out into the either the individual country or maybe even into an individual unit and to follow its progression. Um, one of the th questions I had written down, I got to tell everybody who listens to the Everyday Sniper, I'm a stream of consciousness guy. I rarely write anything down for interviews or anything like that, but I wrote things down for you just because of the amount of detail you do have in this book. So when you were studying the history of this and because you've included so many countries, like when it comes to the training side, did you see any one country that you thought had a, a much better program that may have shown in their employment? and and Or did you think that, each company sort of or country by the end of the war, the middle of the war equaled out, or did you feel that one really excelled over another? I think the British really had a good program once they got to get their, their program together. Initially when the British started, they, they uh, had it in their small arms training manual in 1937, 1939, 1942. 
And all it was was a couple of pages on how to use the scope. And it was left to the battalion intelligence officer who may not be a sniper, instruct these guys on how to snipe. They started schools early, but then it was inconsistent in that um, once the school at the Hyde got bombed out, it was moved in with Bisley. Uh, later on, they, it returned to the Hyde. There was a school in Scotland. And what they taught, each school taught something slightly differently. And if you were lucky, you managed to attend quite a number of schools. The one British advantage was that some of these units were raised early in the war or after Dunkirk. And they never had to go into combat until they landed in Normandy. So the, by that time, though, some snipers like Harry Furness, who's mentioned in the book, attended three sniper schools. So, so he was really well trained before he fired his first shot in combat. So the schools really got better in 44 for the British. Now, the one thing I should add, a precautionary note, is that they had ad hoc replacements like, okay, Tom's the best shot. We lost the sniper, give him the rifle. And he's given instructions in the field on how to be a sniper, but he never attended those formal schools. And we find the same thing happening time and time again with all nations because the casualties can be high and they just do the best they can in the meantime. But I think the British had a very good program. The Soviets were very had a very good program, but they were inconsistent. Like I said, they had field schools, they had formal trainings. Uh, some of the stuff you wonder about what they were, what they were doing, but they they had a, a long-term interest since the 20s in sniping. They, they saw Heskett Pritchard sniping in France. They got a copy, they translated, and they wanted to develop their own sniping program, but they didn't have the ability because they had no optics industry. Oh, they crazy. bought optics from Germany in the 20s, you know, a couple hundred scopes, but this didn't go to the Red Army. It went to the NKVD for the Border Patrol people. I guess they went to shoot spies. But the, because the Soviet the Red Army didn't have the equipment, they had to. They kind of had a program, but they couldn't do that. You know, you can teach a person camouflage. You can keep, teach a person stalking, but you can't have them do the actual marksmanship with an optic until you have an optic. And that didn't happen until around thirty-two or so when they finally with the help of the Germans who, who uh, shipped the factory over to them, gave them the ability to do it. The Americans had some good schools, notably the, the, the Marine Corps. They had uh, a school at Camp Lejeune and one in, in San, around San Diego. And th it was top-notch instruction comparable to any other foreign power. I think our, our scout snipers in the Marine Corps were taught everything you need to be primarily a scout first, a sniper second. So while marksmanship and shooting with optical optic equipped rifles were part of the program, they were taught how to sneak and peek. They were taught how to gather intelligence. They were taught how to operate radios in case they need to do communication. They were taught how to uh, be a forward observer. They were taught sketching. You know, everything a modern sniper was taught is taught today. Those guys were taught back. In, during the war, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And you don't think a sniper's going to have to go hand-to-hand -hand combat, but these guys were expected to grab prisoners at time, or at least collect intelligence. In centuries, we language did. language skills. Yep. Ours were, our hand-to-hand our -hand combat was almost all century removal, and it was every day. Wow. Yeah, yeah. we had it. We had a, what, we, 
we had a ninja camp and we had um we had rubber knives and every morning we would set up and have different methods and techniques of taking sentries out and you would go down and do your hand to hand and then before we were finished you had to do a sentry removal where they had somebody walking and then if they could bust you they could so you would fight but um they also would teach us to push off and let our shooter hit them if it all went to hell but yeah we did we did hand to hand in sniper school pretty religiously um, through sentry removal the american army didn't do that the soviets did a little bit of that too but i'm glad the marine corps hasn't lost its edge and they were really on the forefront when it came to sniper instructor, probably better than the British when it came to things like that. And, well, but the and Marine it would pieces, be, yeah, the marksmanship, right? Well, they, they had to be top marksmen to begin with to become a Marine sniper, and they just made them better. But the emphasis for the Marines was on scouting, not sniping. Yes. And, and that like for us as well, like once you go to the sniper school and stay, well, then they want you to go to the assault swimmer school, the assault climber, which they call it this like those words. But basically you would be the advanced team. So they want you to be able to not only cross the river for swimmer school, but lay a rope bridge behind you for the guys that come behind us. And then the same thing, assault climber, they're going up first to uh, lay the ropes for everybody else. And stay was always included in those supplemental programs to make sure that uh, we could do that. And then, you know, like my thing, because I had been to Amphib Recon School, that's what got me into stay platoon to go to sniper school because I had the Amphib Recon background. And Mark, my stay platoon sergeant at the time, wanted that asset for himself because nobody current had been through uh, recon at all so he, they wanted that but yeah uh for us the scout part is still because i mean we're the eyes ears and trigger finger of the battalion commander so we are his recon yeah it worked out well i mean and i'm glad the marine corps is still keeping up with that that tradition you never never let your skills get rusty keep it as sharp as possible and and give your men the edge over combat so they can come home. Yep, yep. And and the one little piece I, I need to add too, uh, talking about in, in your book, because it, it's kind of the internet lore of um the actors who were sharpshooters. And then you have some of the Eddie Albert in there. Right. Well, Eddie Albert was just a, a swabby, a squid, I guess you guys call him. Right, and right. He, he saw some things go on. Hey, this is relevant to the story and i'm glad he made that comment because um we would not have had it if he didn't make that comment yeah, and it always comes up like who was this guy and who did what and and you can almost see the appeal if somebody was sort of the actor because there was the words of like james colburn or i think it was having done uh something and and there's a couple other actors but you can see how that guy would want something like a sniper mission just from the story aspect of it and because of who they were and they get they were given rank uh, the actors when they went it, you can almost see how they can get away with it mm -hmm. you know, one thing about telling the individual story is i i picked that up from a german writer paul carroll and an american richard wheeler paul carroll wrote a 
a number of books like Hitler Moves East, Scorched Earth, Foxes of the Desert. And Richard Wheeler wrote the Voices that, or Eyewitness to the American Revolution, Eyewitness to Appomattox, Eyewitness to the Peninsula. But what both of those men did in common was they were introduced to the, this is Sam Smith. He was a, he was a farmer before he was uh, pulled away from his plow. And now he found himself in a trench at Petersburg or something like that. And so you introduced a man and you, and maybe another 10 pages later, incident number two involving the same person. So you can kind of follow one soldier, one individual through the, through certain chapters and, and you develop a, an interest in the individual. And that's what I wanted to do with this book. I, you tell I don't... something about the guy. And if you find anything, go ahead. No, I was going to say there's a, I was in, there was a story I, I did in the eighties. Who did the something from the crosshairs? Was it tales from the crosshairs? Oh, um, inside the crosshairs. Yes. That, that I, book. Yes. Duggan um, or something like that. That was, they did. I'm actually, when I did the golf and the story is the ice cream story. So he was doing that, and the only kind of Marine Corps mission, this is prior to Desert Storm, was our mission, the raid. And we had six snipers in it. So he had got a hold of me, and he'd actually, because we didn't act as snipers on the platform, we were assaulters. But one of the stories when we were going through the whole deployment was when the SEALs showed up for ice cream one night, and that's the story of mine that ended up in his book. Um, and, and so I don't even remember doing that really, or talking to him, but I know he reached out to me, uh, gotta be in the nineties or something, whenever he wrote that, but that was individualized to the, uh, individual person's story. I think it was mostly Vietnam, Korea, uh, timeframe, but, uh, he had the individual story in there. I think people want that type of thing because it gives them an insight on how things actually happened or went down in the field. You can read, oh, I hate the Soviet newspapers. Our, our unit destroyed 500 fascists or whatever. And, oh, big deal. You can't relate to something like that. But when you read about a guy crawling through the grass, waiting, waiting a day before he takes his shot, now that's interesting. It puts a name and face to the action. So it may sound fantastic, you know, like did Carlos hack crawl and do a thousand yard general shot and all that. Well, then it's like, well, you know, he did it. And now you have a name and face to it. So that becomes much more interesting. I mean, one of the propaganda you're talking about with the Soviets is they have the pig tied to the tree and the hungry Germans coming and the snipers waiting for him, you know? Um, and, and so they, they had those pieces of, like cartoon propaganda. It was like a political cartoon uh, that's in the book here. And and so, yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it, it, it I don't want to say it humanizes them, but it, it actually makes it even more believable because then you can say, you know, John Smith did that and not like you're saying just a soldier. No, a Soviet soldier didn't do it. So-and-so did it. That does make the things more interesting. That puts a face to the person behind the lens, and it gives the, the reader the ability to relate to it more. Say, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. 
yeah, and that's a huge part of it. I mean, it's that learn from example and seeing the other guy. And absolutely, it's like, well, man, can that be done? Well, wait a minute. He just did it. And and I, that's why I like that you went through that training section of each and the whole beginning there is that this country's training and, and then the different books that were available, like you had mentioned, uh, coming out of the World War One, the British had something to fall back on. The Germans had a little bit to fall back on. And, you know, and then they were able to run with it, but you included that. And then, like I said, once you start getting into the missions, it, it, it's nice that you're putting dates, places, and times to your missions as well. So you're you're able to talk about the locations you use, like it, you even come down to the Germans with the infrared stuff near the back. As I'm moving through here, you you talk about where they developed it, why, when, and and how they were using the the night vision back then and the infrared scopes that they had. Right. You know, the amazing thing about the infrared was. Everybody but the Japanese had it. I mean, the Soviets developed, tried working on it in the 30s, and they finally got it working. The British had one, but it was only for observation to pick up, let's say, um, uh, scouts. If they sent somebody ashore to grab a sand sample and they need to put them, bring them back to the submarine, they could see him swimming. The Americans put it on the weapon, as did the, the, uh, the Germans. Now, the Soviet method was a little different from ours. And that it was a two-man operation. You had a guy with a submachine gun with the viewing device, and he was accompanied by his tovarish with the actual light source, which took a huge amount of weight off the uh, the shooter as he had somebody to actually hold up the battery and point the light for him. So it wasn't until the 50s that the Soviets actually did a one-man operation thing with when they mounted on a rifle and you were a standalone without somebody to carry the battery for you. The but batteries the are gigantic. They're like oh, three all... car batteries on your back. Right. 35 pounds or so. But get this. I just found out that by 1947, the U.S. military declassified infrared. You can actually, there was a book put out and I have it somewhere. And it told you how it worked, how infrared worked. And there was a how to put one together and a, a an ordering sheet at the end of the book. So you can build your own back in 47. You know what? They weren't afraid back then. It was the information was meant for you to run with it. Yeah. I think our intelligence figured out that everybody had it. It's no big secret. Why bother? Yeah, that which makes perfect sense. It, 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 again, like people talk about, you know, my or uh, uh, current events over classifying over the years, and every year they they classify something more and more and more and more. And ten years ago, we could talk about it freely, and now they're going to tell us it's an ITAR violation. You know, so we we still run into that, uh, even you know, technically with the with the scopes. You know, I can't ship a mill dot scope to somebody in Canada because mill dots oh, yeah, are you, you know, yeah. it's it, it's silly. And and so you can see where those things get overclassified and become. But, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that not only did they develop this in World War Two, but two years after World War Two, they're writing a how to book with an order form in the back. It's times do change and sometimes they don't change. We we see nowadays that if you're 
you have the right connections, you can get it out. Oh, absolutely. You know, they, they um, you know have money will travel today. Mm-hmm. What do you um? I, I don't know how I, there's a little bit in there, but in your history and background, what do you think of their attitude towards the anti-tank rifles they had, the 20 millimeter, the bigger ones and that they were that they kind of included in the sniping side of it like we do today uh, with the 50 cals and the ELR guns. But they were using it because of tank warfare. So they had these big blasters. What? Did did you think that worked for him, or you think that just basically pissed the tank off and got a guy killed quicker? Well, tanks were thinner armored back then, especially when it came to the roofs or the belly of tanks. Like the Soviets could actually penetrate at close range the sides of the German tanks, like between the bogey and the uh, return wheeler wheel, and so you have this. 14.5 millimeter bullet bouncing around inside the hull. That's why the Germans put those metal skirts on their tanks. Okay. The in, just to slow down that bullet. Uh, they also found in Stalingrad, if they're up in the building, they could shoot through the roof of a tank. So they were quite a threat to the tanks back then. The disadvantage of those guns, whether it's going to be the one of the Soviet 14.5 or the British uh what did they, they had one, the boys anti-tank rifle mm-hmm. is that the ammunition wasn't very good. I mentioned in a book that, that uh, the Soviet sniper Vasily Zaitsev tried to use the, one of the anti-tank rifles as a sniping weapon and put a scope on it, but the ammunition wasn't accurate enough. So he gave up, but there were a few examples where the Soviets did, use them as an ad hoc sniping weapon with a little bit of a certain a small degree of success too did did you come across anything that just read as a complete failure and thrown away like was there a sniping technique you you saw or came across or some way of employing them that just completely fell apart and somebody said never do that again well, the worst I've seen in in my own research is where some uneducated officer will give a sniper. He didn't know how to use a sniper. And he was, there was an American infantry officer who thought of his sniper as his personal hitman. Somebody would shoot at the officer and he would say, get that guy. There were Soviets who didn't know how to use him. And they would tell him, I want you to throw all your people into this assault. And that included the snipers. You want the snipers to support the assault, not to be the actual assaulting troops. So there were abuses at times, all because of ignorance on part of the officers. And I hope that never happens again. But that's the major flaw I found in the past. It, it, for me personally, I came across that. But our battalion commander, we were the first special operations capable Marine battalion. And that changed the game. They didn't know what to do. They were kind of learning as they went. And our battalion commander kind of pulled us aside and, you know, we work for him. And I have come across an officer and he was like, hey, you know, I'm out there a couple days before and the platoon shows up and we're getting ready to do this raid or whatever. And it's like, all right, sir, we're going to go over here, over here and over here. And this one captain was like, no, we're going to go this way and this way. It's like, no, so I've been here for three days. We're going to go over here, over here and that way. And when he didn't want to do that, I had the ability to leave. 
I'm like, no, I'm not going that way. And you're welcome to go that way. And there was no penalty for me to say no. And so that was impressed on us. Now, I don't know if they can still do that. I'm sure somebody will get in trouble somewhere. But that was kind of come down on high. And it probably was a lesson learned that our battalion commander just said, hey, man, when you guys are out there, if you're the expert, be the expert. And don't worry about these butter bars or whatever comes across. And and so he's like, educate those guys. If they don't want to be educated, don't because he only had 12 of us. So he doesn't want to mess with the 12 he has. Yeah, that's I think. Do you know Alan Boothby? Oh, absolutely. I know Alan. Major Alan Booth. Yeah, he told me that he had and he wrote the a manual on how to how officers should be using their snipers. Because if your officers don't know, they'll give those stupid orders like, we'll go this way instead. Or just walk across this open field. Something dumb because they don't know better. Nobody taught them. We see that happening throughout history. You know, British, there was, who's that uh, Canadian? Uh, A Rob, you talking? Farley Mowat. Farley Mowat. Oh, and oh. he was made the battal battalion intelligence officer because they figured that was where he could do the less harm to the battalion. They didn't want to give him an infantry platoon. So you, you, it just goes to show that the people in charge or the snipers don't necessarily know how to use them. And that it probably happens time and time again. And a piece of history is Alan Boothby was responsible for the Schmidt and Bender slash Premier Scope. He he brought us from the Unertle to the Schmidt and Bender. So he, uh, when he was in charge of that stuff and he did some other, then he was also part of the Scout Sniper Association. So Alan was a big, big player in that transition um, from where the Marine Corps was in my era to the modern where it is now from when it goes from like 8541 to 0317 from the Inertle to the Schmidt and Bender. Alan is knuckle deep in all of that. Yeah. Too bad they uh, kind of forced them out. Yeah, I think, I think I, and, and that happens. Before. I mean, he was doing some other stuff, too, that was in the appropriation side, and that gets tricky with contracting and weird stuff. But um, no, for sure, that was definitely – let me see where else are my Post-it notes here for you. I know I got a couple of them. We got that. Let me hang on here. Make sure I'm not missing. I got these inserts. The yeah, you, One of the things I, I actually on the page, I, I did it going back to the training a second because we didn't really go in a straight line. I think it's funny that they show a military, you know, he's got his tie on it. I, I don't think he's an officer. Let me go back to the picture real quick. I don't think he's an officer, but um, teaching the woman to shoot. It, it doesn't show if he's an officer or not, but you have a man in a uniform, what would be like a partisan woman. And they're in inside the house and you have two women with their headscarves on and it's a painting. And then you have a soldier teaching them to shoot as in a sniping mode. And that comes up to like all the women and stuff because there's so much women. You even have new pictures of the Ukrainian woman and you have a lot of the Soviet women represented in the book. And the Soviets... Uh, they're supposed to be an egalitarian society. That's what they said back then. 
but they were very reluctant to accept women warriors. And it's only when they had, say, suffered such grievous losses that they started pressing women or allowing women to serve in frontline combat role. Traditionally, they pushed you know, they them into, let's say, auxiliary roles like laundress, uh, cooks, uh, nurses, medics, radio operators, uh, truck drivers, traffic controllers, and you know, anti-aircraft. But they didn't really want them in the front line because they felt that they were very chauvinistic, not like our woke society today. And they wanted to be in the rear. But there were plenty of women who had pre-war instructions in marksmanship. And if you became a top shooter, let's say you went, you won your school competition, you won the inter-school competition and or, or and district competition, what they called oblast, you received a small little medal, the Vora Shiloff Marksmanship Award. Now, when you went to work after you graduated from school or you went into your trade, you can go to what they called the Oso Avakim, which was a society for chemical and uh, aviation, which is supposed to be like a self-defense organization. The interesting thing about the Oso Avakim, besides teaching paramilitary skills like how to dig a trench, how to stand guard, how to, um, how to scout, they also had the complete snipers course that if you had the Voral Shiloff Marksmanship Medal, you can actually go in and learn to be a sniper while you're a civilian. And that's how quite a number of these women went in. Uh, Ludmila Pavlachenko, the one whose uh, her book is Lady Death, that's how she became a sniper. And there were a couple others. Another way a, a Soviet woman could become a sniper was generally they were members of the Consumo, which is the uh, the communist youth organization they had in the Soviet Union, and you were allowed to attend the Central Women's Sniper School near somewhere in Moscow, and that was a six-month-long training program. Taught them how to how to shoot, how to throw grenades, how to camouflage themselves, how to stalk, and if they were good enough to graduate, and they were sent out in platoons. The third method that women snipers were recruited was they're at the front. I said, I'm tired of seeing people get killed. And they had somebody teach them in an ad hoc school situation. So there, there were quite a number, probably over 1,800 women snipers in the Soviet Union. Not that all the people went to school actually became snipers. There was uh, Irina Botnar and her pictures in the book. She finished the Central Women's Sniper School. What happens to her? NKVD grabs her and says, you're now a letter censor. So she's sitting in some, some hole in the ground reading soldiers' letters and censoring out anything that shouldn't be uh, in there. And that's how she she spent her, her career as a sniper, just reading letters. So it, it all, it, it's, it's quite an interesting story. I mean, you, you always hear these kind of like these failures and things. Was there, I mean, not necessarily just bad, but good as well. Was there anything in your research that basically stood out to you like, wow, this story is is an example of probably the best way of looking at it. And then is there also another story that's probably the worst way? Like that to me would be one of the worst examples where you train somebody up and then you tell her to censor letters. To me, that would be an example of not utilizing a resource. But it did is there is there sort of a positive side where you read a story like, well, this worked out exactly perfect that that sits in your mind? Sure, there was this, uh, Sepp Allenberger, and I'm sure everybody read the book, um, his book about being a sniper on Eastern Front. Here he is. 
he's trained as a carpenter and when he's wounded he's a machine gunner when he's wounded he's uh, recuperating in the rear and he starts playing with a captured soviet sniper rifle and the, and the armor says take this to the front and he goes there and he proves his skill as you know with the scope and after a while his commanding officer marks him down as a sniper aspirant so he can attend formal school and it really worked out well for him now there's ad hoc situations like who's that Horace West who uh, is in the book you've seen his picture with he has his uh, rifle that he called Mabel mhm yes yep but, well Horace West was just an outdoor country boy and he got himself in a heap of trouble for uh, the Biscari massacre and he's sent to prison for it well i decides that we need frontline soldiers and this could have been like a soviet death sentence too where we need soldiers you're you made your you're bad we're sending you to a penal company so by sending horse t west back into combat that could have been a death sentence but it actually worked out well for him because he's on this on a train he's going to a new unit he talks to a, a brand new gi who's a sniper and they caught the kid kid gets killed and horse t west talks to the the captain and he says i think i can use that rifle and he actually shoots the guy who killed the the young sniper because he just some he had that hunting instinct in him so that's one of those stories that here's a guy no training but knew everything because he was a hunter in the past and he made use of a rifle yeah he had the he he, he got the rifle he needed and then he was able to excel with it yes I never found out his final score, but he did survive the war, received his honorable discharge. So they kind of buried everything over. The Italians today are still kind of angry at him, too. I read in some thing where a journalist was saying, oh, this guy, he murdered a bunch of our people and the Americans never acknowledged it. I mean, we know about it. It's just that we don't publicize it much. And it was and in the was, war. So, yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's hard. And I talk, there's a section in there that I talk about prisoners and there's a real fine line. When can you be accepted as a prisoner? And if it, it, it depends on whether the soldier's real angry. I just lost my best friend in the world. Uh, and this guy shot him. Boom. It's over. They kill him. Or the guy uses up all his bullets and he wants to surrender and nobody's happy about it. And they, so they shoot him. So right. it, it depends on how much discipline the officer has over his unit or how bad somebody upstairs wants a prisoner for intelligence. And so it's a real iffy thing. Most of the time, these guys were not taken prisoners. It's very rare that they were. And I I wouldn't be surprised if it's not that way today either. What, with one of the areas I want to kind of get into a little bit, just because it's a more of a Marine Corps centric, is, is the Pacific War. It's To me, it's... Like it's represented very stereotypical guy hiding in the coconut tree, shooting down in there, but it wasn't that way. It was a lot more nuanced. They used a lot more techniques in them. Like today we're so dog centric. They were really dog centric back then. Right. The Marine Corps actually raised a dog platoon for virtually every division. The first war dog platoon wasn't too good because it was trained by a Hollywood trainer who didn't really know what the Marines needed. The second and third platoon was trained by a veterinarian who was in the Corps and he 
developed three types of dogs for the Corps. One was a, a runner dog who could uh, carry ammunition or bring medical supplies back and forth between two. There was a scout dog, and I guess the third one was something like a sentry dog. But these dogs were good for detecting movement or hearing things that the, the regular Marine couldn't hear. And they would tell the, the Marine, hey, there's somebody coming. And it actually helped the Marines in developing defensive positions because these dogs, they they had senses that, that exceed that, that what we have. So it worked out well for the Marines. The Army also did the same thing too. In fact, if you go to one of these islands, there's a, a cemetery for these Marine dogs. Yeah, there. Uh, there was a, it's, it's now because dogs are getting popular again and big, but there's actually a resurgence of people talking about the dogs from World War II and the different breeds they use. Because we had, like you had mentioned, some Dobermans and some different breeds, uh, not just the straight up German Shepherd. And so I, I've noticed because a lot of people are kind of revisiting the dog world, uh, everybody now, you go to SHOT Show and every third person's uh, walking with a dog. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it just kind of was interesting that you're hearing more about Marine Corps dog platoons now because guys are using the dogs today so much. Right. There was even a black lab. I forgot the name of it, but it's on the cover of that book, uh, Always Faithful. Yes, yes. I, I remember hearing about the, exactly. And that's what I was saying. They had like not just your typical German Shepherd breed, but they had some kind of weird breeds thrown in there because they were like we do today. They're they're specialized in either their nose, eyes or ears. And, and so they'll grab that breed for that. But they weren't they didn't shy away from it because it wasn't a, you know, a, a mean breed. Right. The Marines' concern was the dog's temperament. They didn't want a dog that would panic under the fire. They wanted it to be calm. They wanted it not to bark and give away the position either. So the dog had to have the right temperament for combat, and then it had to be able. They had to be able to train it so that it would not divulge their position. So it was a very careful program back then, and I'm sure the Corps does the same thing today ensure that only the, the proper animals are accepted, regardless of what breed it is, too. It's the dog, not the breed. And and you see, I mean, now they kind of go a little bit with specific breeds and stuff. But yes, they, they do look at it. And you will see a weird, like a, an odd breed for different things. But no, I just thought like we, because... It was it was long and and hard and all that, but the, but that Pacific War is kind of interesting. Like I said, that it we don't have a lot of detail on it. That at least people didn't put out beyond the the, the Japanese uh, weapon systems. But I mean, you you have some really good detail as far as the ammunition. The the the, the one I'm trying to find the picture with the the Japanese soldier where you have the flags and the and he's ghillie suited up. Um, if I could find that one again, because it just goes to show you the, the the loadout for the soldier back then, that it was a little bit more detailed than a guy just throwing some palm fronds on and going to work. Here we go. Yeah, they're a Japanese equipment guide, the soldier's guide to the Japanese army. Right. I kind of think that the grass cake or suit they wore was the, like the raincoat that he adopted for a camouflage mm -hmm. and you if you watch some of those old japanese movies you'll see these guys these samurais or something or 
or peasants wearing these grass capes and said, hey, let's just use this in combat. So they brought what they had with them. And I think that one color image I have came from the uh, the museum, the, uh, the, the one in Fort Benning, the National Infantry Museum. In fact, I think they presently have a, a display, a special exhibit on uh, sniping, World War II sniping. Yes. Yep. So if you were, there, if there's, you were to go there right now, you can go ahead. No, no, I was doing you finish and then I'll go. Go ahead. Yeah. They use my book as part of the thing for setting up that exhibit, too. I work closely with the curator and he provided me a lot of images of the Japanese rifle and even images of the uh, the scope. The look, So you can see the reticle, which is something I don't think anybody else showed before. No, and that's the thing. Like they I had, said, the information was so limited. Like it was always just stereotypical. It never really got into detail. And I think when you look at it, and one of the things with that particular image and why I wanted to jump back to it, if you look at pictures of myself, the platoon, and different things in in, in you know the 80s and stuff, we I wore the non-standard, I had the palladium shoes, right? So they they let us wear what was sort of like the coral booties. So whether we were in the water and we we're going to put fins on, the the palladiums allowed us to put fins over them. Then when you hit the beach or if you're on coral or anything, you, you don't get stuck with the urchins or nothing like that, especially in Okinawa. And then you're in shore and you just move in in their canvas. So they're light. They're like a sneaker. Well, the Japanese sniper in that, he's using the split toe slipper. And he changes footwear. And it's just kind of funny how we we look at that mobility. We try to look at speed and maneuverability and how the, the sniper kind of adjusts that equipment. And they're wearing the split-toed slipper. We're wearing a canvas palladium. And it's different but similar. Right. Well, adapt your equipment for your mission. And I yes. think a lot of snipers did that. Uh Sepp Alleberger, who I mentioned, had that half umbrella that he would stick grass into. And so it didn't matter where he was. He would just pull out that umbrella, start decorating it, and use it. Now, he probably picked that up from the Soviets because that was also in the Soviet manual. I've seen the umbrella uh, mentioned many times over the years. And even like the Israelis now, with their in the room, is a uh, the... Uh, folding sort of umbrella where where they could pop it open so it creates a hide site in a room and it's it's all folded up like a folding chair with the uh, bungee cords and all that and then you just basically pop it open and it turns it into this blacked out tent so it's a similar to the umbrella and and one of the to get to the umbrella thing is is kind of funny because in your urban sniping inset uh, where you have the urban sniping. I think he's a Brit. Let me see if I can find. Oh, there it was. Like Arm, a Armstrong. He's a Canadian. Is he Canadian? But does he have the uh, the branch in the windowsill? There's oh, one of them. Yes, There's yes, one yes. of them. You have it, and he's hiding. He's in the room. He's in the windowsill, and he has a dead branch between him and the edge. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't you recognize there's a tree branch inside the room? So I thought it was pretty funny that the the second picture down on the urban fighting page on 158, uh, the the guy's got right. a 
tree branch inside the room. And I, and when you mentioned that, that stuff, I thought that was funny because to me, that would be like an example of a camouflage choice I wouldn't make. <laughs> right. Well, I like the other fellow who's all the way back and he's shooting from the back of the room through Absolutely. an open window. Yeah, totally, totally. And that's, that's the way the you would way. do it. Yeah, but I just it, it's just oh, absolutely. And, you know, this this is always a thing, too, because you had mentioned, you know, you see somebody do it and within training. Well, coming up before the Internet and then even early on with the Internet, we would get people would come to class or come somewhere and they have their rifle and then they have their leg cocked up and they're shooting it like they were slung. And it's the pictures. We see pictures of people doing things in these World War II books growing up, like especially, like I said, pre-internet. And that's what everybody copies. And today we see kids that are like 16 to 18 years old who start shooting and they're good. They're really, really good because they grew up with YouTube. So they got to watch like me or the next guy do a video on how to shoot something where my generation looked at a picture in a book. Right. I also think that some of these things these kids have today are much better than what we had when we were growing up. I'm much older than you. And yeah, I had to look at pictures too, but they also have these video games that really teach them even how to, just a simple thing, like how to operate the weapon. Mm -hmm. And that's something, you know, I had to read W.H.B. Smith's small arms of the world if I want to learn how to use a rifle or a machine gun. These guys just watch, uh, play these games and they're taught how to do it. Absolutely. And and it's the eye-hand coordination. It's the reaction. They're quicker and they're used to looking at reticles and aligning reticles, you know? So their point of influence and contact, that scope in the reticle, that's what they use on the TV screen is a reticle just outside of the scope. And so that's how they get really good um, as far as that, because they're they're used to that picture. Right. The only thing they have to do is no distance estimation then, so they know where to put that reticle. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the one thing the games tend to get a little wrong in most cases. Every now and then you'll come across a, a single mission in a game. It might get it close, but the games, you can have the smallest weapon on the planet and it'll shoot as far as you need it to go if you're in the game. Uh, so it, it doesn't work perfect, but it it definitely, it, it creates a muscle memory that translates to the real world. That reminds me of an army sergeant who's retired now that I knew. He he played up for it. He would shine his laser on a helicopter or a tank and knock it out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, so sometimes, and yeah. For sure. So... Gary, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Go, like, first give everybody, so you have this book that they can get, The World War II Snipers, The Men, Their Guns, and Their Story, and it's Gary Yee, Y-E-E, -E, for anybody who wants to Amazon, Google, or anything like that to get. But you have other books, and you're working on some other stuff, so why don't you plug whatever you have out there so people can find your work? Well, my first book was Sharpshooters, 1750 to 1900. The Men, Their Guns, The Story. And the inspiration for that book was uh, Clifford Shores with British snipers to the right. He mentions the, the Royal Americans, and I just had to research these guys. And 
that plunged me into the Flintlock era. So I started researching the Flintlock era, and then that led to the Civil War era. And so that book, which is about 856 pages long, more or less sets the pattern that this uh, World War II snipers book goes by. It's chronologically ordered. It tells about a soldier, tells of the event, and then it tells of the incident where he shot somebody at long distance. The other book uh, that came out after that was Sharpshooters, Marksmen Through the Ages, and that was like condensation of the first book. The third book was Union Sharpshooters versus Confederate Sharpshooters, and that was a summary of the Civil War chapters of the first book. And this is the fourth. My latest one is the World War II Sniper's Pocket Manual, which is print-on-demand from Barnes & Noble. And what makes that book unique, apart from the rest, is it has a 1933 Soviet instruction manual for the training of snipers, something that has never been released before in English. It also draws from like 20 other uh, government documents from different nations, including the Finnish one, on uh, the, the best material they have for sniping instruction uh, for World War II. So if you were a World War II sniper, this would be the book to get. If you want to learn about sniping, you're better off with the modern Marine Corps or Army sniping manual. So and presently, I'm trying to get back to the Civil War and working on a book on one of the sieges of the Civil War. You are an amazing resource, Gary. I mean, I like I said, I grew up from, you know, third grade, fifth grade, whenever they started making us do book reports. And I've, I have a bunch of World War II reference books, and this is amazing. And on the sniper side of it, you're not going to find a more complete book on sniping, especially like we're for World War II here, than what Gary's put together. So I highly recommend you guys go out. If, if you're a history buff, a firearms buff, whatever the case may be, like watching those shows on, on Discovery, Gary's books are the way to go. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I'm blown away on the format, the amount of detail, all the little inserts. I mean, you included everything, include, like I said, including those pieces of propaganda, because that shows you the mindset of the country back then. I mean, they're, they're showing, you know, those people, like how they viewed their enemy. And, and you talk a little bit about the psychological effect of sniping and that and that always comes up with us the impact a sniper would have on the battlefield, not just physically, but psychologically. Right. Snipers played an important role back then, but it was unfortunately largely forgotten right after World War II. We went to nuclear weapons. I said, what do we need a sniper for? We're going to all these, we're just going to use nukes now. And that didn't happen. We found that out in Korea. We found that out in Vietnam. And it wasn't only until the 70s or late 70s or early 80s that we started taking sniping seriously. And all militaries do today. Modernly, it's inconceivable that any military force would not, you know, wouldn't have a sniper. It's a force multiplier when used properly. And so I hope that, let's say, this winds up in the hands of instructors of all the modern sniping schools, with the exception of one nation and that it, they can use it to inspire their, their students to do to do their job. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it is if you're, like I said, a student history, if you want to see what, you know, great, great grandparents did back then. And I mean, it warfare modernizes. It doesn't really change. 
you know, we're still going to go and, and put two people against each other and, and bash our heads in kind of give or take. It's just what we use, whether it's a fist, a rock. I mean, we're really just throwing rocks, right? And a nuke is, is a rock with the plutonium. We're just exploding the rock. Um, but yeah, we, we're, we're always going to be throwing rocks at each other. Uh, and this is a this is a great reference. And, and like I said, if you're that student, if you want to be the, the, know the background, this book is fantastic. I, is I it available? Oh, I'm sorry, stepping on. Is it available on Amazon? You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it from Casemate, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, or if you don't have the money, don't worry. Go get your library card out and go down there. If they don't have it, you can get it through interlibrary loan. You get the ISBN number off the uh, Amazon, hand that to the librarian. They'll order it for you for free. So you don't have to spend money if you want to read it. But this is probably a book that you want to have on your shelf because it's probably the most thorough and exhaustive book on the World War II sniper. And I think it will help spawn new research by other people. And uh, shout out to Casemate, your publisher. They did a fantastic job with the way this book is presented. I mean, it is it is amazing when you go through it. Right. When I originally wrote this book, I envisioned the normal nine by six book, or which is a wall of text, and every now and then you see an image. That's what I thought it was going to be, and I had, so I submitted three hundred images. Most of them were of the firearms. Casemate saw it differently. They immediately recognized the potential of this book and said, "No, we have to put it in the illustrated series, which are normally two hundred pages." And so they had a special meeting to say, do we really want to go with this project? Because it's going to be over 200, it's 352 pages. And it had like hundreds of images in it. And they said, yeah, I think we can recover our money. So they did that. And I have to give a shout out for the editor, uh, Simon Forty, and his daughter, Eleanor, because she's the one who designed this book. In fact, I think she made the book so pretty. People are going to look at the images, read the captions and read the text boxes and ignore the text. <laughs> well, that's, I, I put you off a while because I was doing that in the beginning and then I'd go back and read it. And then I'd go back and look at all your insets and then I'd have to catch up. So that's why it took me a little while to get to you. Yeah. On, on those text boxes too, there's a backstory behind it. When I originally wrote the book, it was 15 chapters. It's 13 now. But they took the last chapter, which was Sniper Miscellany, which had a whole bunch of material that I couldn't put in the context of any of the other chapters. But it, it was part of the story, it had to be in there. It was like the chapter, I mean, this the textbook on, on uh, German officers with rifles, you know, or snipers as prisoners. Those were all like little things that were in the, in the chapter 15, all this miscellaneous material. And they, they saw that, casemates saw it, and they said, this is text box because it fits the format of that series of books this book is in, the illustrated series. So they saw something I didn't see. Uh, Simon, too, was the book took me about two years to write before I presented, I, I presented the manuscript. And Simon was kind of like being a school teacher to me. He says, OK, read this book and write me something. And so that's how some text boxes were generated, too. He, went, so he knew about some information I didn't know about. He says, Go get this now and, and write something about it. The Lumidia Pavlachenko uh, text box was something, well, one of those writing assignments. Write something about her. We need more information. 
and that's why we have that there. Yeah, the first kill, so right? He was fun to work with. You're, you're with yeah, the, uh, the first kill was another one. Yep, yep. The men against tanks, that was another one. Uh, there was quite a number of them. And then I also have to like thank uh, the Blotfinick Archive Foundation. And I found all the images. I found a lot of the stories. They have maybe hundreds of interviews on Russian, but thankfully they have a transcription in English, so it made it really quick. But so I used a lot of material from them, but they also had a lot of images that nobody's ever seen before. And it was really nice and allowed me to reproduce the images. And that's why we have so many images of Soviet soldiers that nobody knows who these guys are or remembers. But now, you know, regardless of nationality, I'm, these people have their voice back and can be heard by future generations. These oh, guys absolutely. have been silent for a long time or forgotten. And now they're back in the limelight where they deserve to be. You did an amazing job on this, Gary. I guess you're you're an amazing resource. I mean, I'm so glad Pierce put us together and wanted to do this. And then when I got the book and started looking, I'm I think I said like when I first got, it, I was like, oh my god, who puts out a book like this? I think I threw that in a PM to you guys. Like, wow, this was crazy, amazing. When and then going through it, and and, and I had to um, hang on, uh, I had to back up and um. What do you call it? Uh, do it again. Sorry, my phone just died on the computer went. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it was just, it, it. it's really well done. And like you said, the design and what they did in the inserts and all that is just, and it's like it's the pictures on an individual level. It's not so much where you're going to see that guy just running past the camera you're going to see him hanging out laughing. You're going to see him posing with his rifle. And, and the colorized even kind of gives that context of what they're wearing. I mean, the colorizers aren't perfect, I don't think, but they still give you that feel that's different from just seeing a black and white picture. Yeah. I think Casemate did a terrific job in his book, and I really have to give a shout out for them for making it a first-class production. Definitely. Well, Gary, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I definitely want to do this again. Maybe we'll talk about one of your other books. Uh, definitely recommend everybody go out on Amazon. World War II Snipers, The Men, Their Guns, and Their Stories. It, it's all in there. You won't miss anything with it. Really great job. Okay. Thank you, Frank. Yep. Thank you, Gary. Hang on one second. I'm going to end the recording for everybody out there and then I'm going to go off. So thanks a lot, Gary. We're going to end this guys. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.